Aside from working on a competition for standardizing post-quantum primitives, the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, has also organized a lightweight cryptography competition meant to attract designs for symmetric primitives, such as hash functions and authenticated encryption ciphers, that work in use cases where even AES is not an adequately speedy standard. Among the submissions to NIST's lightweight cryptography competition has been Gimli, a family of cryptographic primitives comprised of a hash function and of an authenticated encryption with associated data, or AEAD cipher. Named after the Lord of the Rings dwarf warrior and authored by a long list of accomplished cryptographers, Gimli looked like a promising submission, until a team of cryptanalysts at INRIA produced a surprising set of results outlining some potentially serious weaknesses in Gimli's current design. In their paper, which recently was declared as the winner of the IACR AsiaCrypt 2020 Best Paper Award, Antonio Flores Guterres, Gaetan Laurent, Maria Nea Plasencia, Leo Perrin, André Schottenloher, and Ferdinand Sibleras from the INRIA Research Institute here in France presented some very strong results against Gimli's security. But why does Gimli even matter? Why aren't AES, ChaCha20, and Blake2 enough, even for the most performance-constrained scenarios? And how did this team of researchers succeed in obtaining such serious results on a family of cryptographic primitives that was certainly designed with care and expertise? authors of the paper that we just talked about, uh, Leo Perrin. Uh, Leo is a junior researcher, chargé de recherche at INRIA in the COSMIC team. Uh, good morning, Leo. Good morning, Nadim, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Before being at INRIA, Leo was a postdoc at DTU in Denmark and a PhD student at the University of Luxembourg in Luxembourg, where he graduated in 2017. He works on symmetric cryptography, which is both designing and analyzing block ciphers and hash functions, etc., on discrete mathematics, mostly Boolean functions, and at the intersection of both, uh, which is the study of S-boxes, substitution boxes. Um, uh, construction that you would find in ciphers, block ciphers such as AES. He also investigates the various standardizing processes that are used for cryptographic primitives, such as the NIST competition, for example. Okay, so I really appreciate you coming on, Leo. Um, can you talk more about the NIST competition that inspired Gimli? I mean, I'm, I'm personally a bit surprised to learn that there are use cases where even AES and ChaCha20 are not considered fast enough. So it's not so much about uh, speed. Speed is one of the criteria you want to optimize for uh, uh, an algorithm, but you also have uh, code size, you also have uh, RAM consumption. If you're looking at hardware, uh, speed is more complicated to define because you're going to have the throughput, which is the amount of data you encrypt in a given time. You also have the delay, which is the time it takes from the moment you put the input in your uh, circuit and the moment you get the output. Uh, that's specific to hardware. And then you also need to take into account uh, masked implementations, for instance, if you want to have some protection, ag protection against side channel attacks. And if you are in software, you want to have a fast constant time implementation. So not relying on uh, table lookups, which is what you usually have for very fast uh, AES implementations. Uh, 
So it's not that you can't get the AES to work. It's that it's difficult to get the AES to work in these contexts. And it would be much, much easier to get good implementations with dedicated algorithms. And in some cases, uh, the AES itself is just too big. The 128-bit block size is too large. Or what could also happen is that um, with the AES, you only have an encryption algorithm. So if you want to save um, code size or really physical space on the die of your chip, you'll want to have a primitive which can do more things than just encryption. So if you want to have hashing, for instance, you can't do that with the AES because it only has a 128-bit block size, which is too small. So if you want to have more functionalities than just encryption, if you want to have a fast mask implementation or a fast uh, constant time implementation, then the AES is not that great. You can try and get it to work in many cases, but it's going to be a lot of work and the result will not be as good as with a dedicated algorithm. So that's why NIST wants um, new algorithms for these contexts. That's very interesting. Could you give a practical example? Like, are there any devices that we can find on the market or maybe in uh, specialized use cases? Um, I don't know, satellites, military equipment that would require uh, the deployment of a hash function like Gimli airplanes? I don't know. Uh, for satellites, I don't think it's so much of an issue. It's really going to be like uh, RFID tags or really teeny tiny microcontrollers that you're going to find in um, IoT devices. So something which has very, very little computing power, much less than a smartphone or a plane or something like that. Although, uh, for instance, in, uh, in cars or in uh, embedded software, you have some specific lightweight constraints which are not going to be about, say, the code size, but it's going to be about the latency, the delay. Uh, if you want uh, to have a very, very fast answer, if it's, I don't know, for your brakes or something like that, you want as low a latency as possible, and there are dedicated ciphers uh, that might not be those with the smallest area, for instance, but with a very, very low delay. So you're saying that Gimli can help me get better latency in Counter-Strike and online <laughs> games, because now I'm very interested and I really want to get into this field. I feel like I did my um, PhD in, in something that is completely useless. Gimli, I don't know. Gimli was not optimized for low latency. Uh, most of the candidates to the NIST competition were optimized for other things, but there was a candidate for the first round, which was Karma, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. spelled with a Q. So which I can, was I can kill my enemies in Counter-Strike and I can say, that's Karma. No. Yes, but karma was broken, so oh, darn. someone could uh, spoof your connection or stuff like that. Make me you know, not, not aim properly. It's, it's terrible. Missed opportunity. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So uh, what are the criteria in which NIST is judging these designs? How do they pick the correct um, uh, submission for a symmetric, uh, lightweight symmetric primitive? That's a very, very good question. Uh, the truth is we don't really know because it's very it's a di very difficult task. Um, for the post-quantum competition, they have very different algorithms and they are really pushing the boundaries in uh, in what we know as uh, as a community. In the case of lightweight crypto, it's symmetric crypto. We understand that better. So if you ask a bunch of cryptographers to design secure uh, symmetric primitives they're mostly going to get it quite right. So if you're just looking at the security level, basically what happened is that there was 60, 56 candidates uh, for the first round, and all those which looked 
like they could have security issues were ditched for the second round. And out of the 32 candidates which are left, for most of them, security level is not going to be really a criteria because most of them are fine. So it means that they're going to have to decide based on performance criteria. After all, that's what lightweight crypto should be about, really good performances. But then it means they need to find a way to benchmark them. And that's going to complicate things a lot because if you benchmark stuff in software, you get very different results from if you benchmark them in hardware. And then on hardware, what kind of hardware? FPGA, sorry, RFID. And in software, what kind of microcontrollers do you want to look at? And do you care about past implementations or not? So they have all these uh, use cases where the performances are going to be very different for which they need to get good benchmarks and then make the right decision. So do they want to have one primitive which does it all? And then they might end up with something which is a new AES in the sense that it's going to be pretty good at a lot of things, but it's not going to be excellent at many things. Or do they want to have a portfolio, in which case they would have primitives which are excellent at each thing, but it would be different primitives, which means it would be a more difficult standard to use because you would have like the light, NIST lightweight standard for software and the NIST lightweight standard for, I don't know, masked hardware and the NIST standard for unmasked hardware. Do they That's take, complicate um, things. Do they take implementation difficulty into account? Because I know that that was a very important criteria that actually made AES win over uh, block ciphers with higher security margins. That's a good question. I, in the case of lightweight crypto, I would expect it to be less of criteria because most lightweight ciphers have implementations which are really short. Um, if you look at Gimli, the whole permutation fits into uh, a PDF page. So they have uh, in the in the original paper, the chess paper, they have a C implementation of the permutation, which is, which is written in proper C, uh, indented and everything, and it fits in one page with room to spare. Okay. And it's not the only one. That's good to hear. Um, so could you, you, you know, you have this paper, it, it won a, you know, a nice award at a prestigious conference. Um, could you give us a brief introduction before we get into these results on how it is exactly that you actually conduct cryptanalysis? How do you take, uh, could you summarize maybe the process? How do you take a hash function or a, or a block cipher? And how do you decide uh, where to look for weaknesses, how to uh, better understand where to break the cipher? So in this case, the hash function and the AEAD both rely on a single, what we would call a primitive. So it's not a block cipher in this case, it's uh, what we call a permutation, which you can think of as a block cipher with a big block size, but a fixed key. So the techniques we're going to use in this case are a technique that we borrow from a block cipher cryptanalysis. And then, so you have all these lightweight candidates and you want to look for a nice target because you have to break the other people's candidate if you want yours to be in a better position. It's a competition after all. And in the case of uh, Gimli, the reason we targeted Gimli is that it has um, the, its designers made some um, new choices when it comes to its design. It doesn't really look like uh, other permutation-based ciphers. If you look, for instance, at um, Xudu, which was designed by the Ketchak team, it looks like Ketchak, which itself look, looks like a regular block cipher where you have a smallest box and a big linear layer. In Gimli, it's not like that. You have big sub-blocks on which a permutation is applied. Think of it like a very big S-box. 
And then you have a linear layer, which is extremely sparse. And that tends to worry us uh, symmetric cryptanalysts because you want to have strong diffusion in a cipher or in a permutation in this case. So if you don't have strong diffusion, then it means you want to, to see if you can exploit it. It's something which looks odd, and then you want to see if it is indeed odd and if it was indeed a good idea. Uh, that in the case, in this specific instance, that's why we looked at this primitive. Uh, the designers made some new choices and we wanted to see if they were good choices. Uh, how do you go from there? Uh, do you use differential cryptanalysis uh, or are you trying to, for example, look for side channels? Uh, what are the specific sort of initial set of techniques that allow you to determine um, how to better understand the actual security margin of a particular part of the uh, primitive design? So the first thing we do is we look at what the designers did in terms of security analysis. So for instance, for differential cryptanalysis, they had some security arguments, uh, which are absolutely fine. So we knew that just plain differential cryptanalysis would not work because the designers uh, tried it themselves and so that it couldn't work. So it tells us that um, if we are going to try and do some differential techniques, we have to be more clever than that and try something more sophisticated than just the plain attack. Out of the 32 candidates uh, that, are, um, that made it to the second round of the NIST competition, none of them is going to be vulnerable to plain um, differential cryptanalysis. Because if there was any chance that they might be, they would have been kicked out already. When you design a new primitive, you have to look at differential cryptanalysis. It's the, very basic thing, and it's something we understand kind of well compared to other attacks. But still, since it's something we understand well, we tend to think of our attacks in terms of uh, differential cryptanalysis in some way, um, a lot of the time. Still, it means we need to find new tricks. And so in this paper, we looked at not plain differential cryptanalysis, but we try, try to combine it with our other attacks. So for instance, we have found a differential linear um, distinguisher, which combines uh, differential cryptanalysis and linear cryptanalysis. So basically you do a differential cryptanalysis of the first half of the round and a linear cryptanalysis of the second half of the round. And because of some uh, mathematical tricks, this can be much better than just doing a, a differential attack on the full thing or a linear attack on the full thing. So we had a look at that, for instance. Uh, the results are in the paper. Um, we can go much further than with a plain differential attack, if I remember correctly, but not, um, it's not a threat to the permutation itself. You use some interesting terms in the paper, uh, full state collision, semi-free start collision. Um, could you go more into what those mean? And do they actually mean that if I were using Gimli in some microcontroller today, is there, what is the extent of the actual practical security risk that these collisions uh, imply? So most of the paper is devoted to attacks against the permutation itself. But then you have to look at the permutation in a mode, because when, you use a, when you're building a hash function or an AEAD, or a extendable output function, which I don't know why people use this term, it's a stream cipher, but it's the same thing really. But when you are using this kind of higher level algorithm, you put a permutation inside a mode. So our core results are about the permutation in itself. So the permutation in itself exhibits some bad behaviors that you would not want to have in a cryptographic permutation, but they are not easy to use to mount an attack on the permutation inside a mode. 
So when we talk about full state collisions, for instance, it's something about the sponge construction, which you use if you build a hash function. So in a hash function, uh, which you build using a permutation, you have the state, the full state, which in the case of uh, Gimli is 384-bit uh, wide. But when you input your message blocks, they're only going to be XORed into 128 bits of the state. So there are two 56 bits of the state that you don't, that you can't touch as an attacker. And so your task as a cryptanalyst is to try to find tricks to get some control over these two 56 bits and to get a collision over them. So the full state collision is when you get two sequences of messages that lead to identical uh, states. So for instance, if you have a hash function, it means that if you, your messages are identical from that point onwards, or if you already start uh, squeezing to get the digest, you're going to get identical digests. Uh, the algorithms are deterministic, so if they have identical, you manage to get them into a state where they're identical, they're going to stay identical. And that's how you can get collisions, for instance, or second pre-images, which as attackers is what we want to get. Uh, the semi-free start collision is something uh, which is a bit more complicated. So in the very beginning of the, when you initialize the state for the hash function, you give it a fixed value, which is specified by the designers and which usually is all, all, all zero. But you can get an attack where the attacker can choose uh, this value. So it's not an attack which is going to be a threat to the primitive to the actual hash function at this stage. It's a theoretical attack, but it's more interesting than just an attack on a permutation because it means you're attacking the hash function itself. Not quite the real hash function, but something which starts to look like it. And in symmetric uh, cryptanalysis, attacks are incremental. So you don't, you very rarely get a full break right away. What happens is that first you get an attack on the several rounds of the primitive and then more rounds and then the full primitive itself. And then, you find ways to use these attacks to attack the primitive in a mode. So if you look at the attacks against SHA-1, in SHA-1 you have a block cipher inside, basically. And so you have attacks, if you look at the literature, you have attacks against uh, several rounds, many rounds, many, many rounds, all the rounds on just the primitive. And then they start to turn these attacks uh, into attacks against the hash function itself. First, semi-free starts, which were published somewhere in 2015, I think. And from these, they could build then attacks against the actual hash function. And so now we have co actual collisions for the actual SHA-1. So it's uh, further in the process. So in the case of Gimli, we don't have collisions for full Gimli. We have attacks on the full primitive, so the full thing which is inside Gimli, the permutation itself. And then for the hash function, we only have results on uh, round-reduced hash functions. So it's the hash function itself except we have to weaken the, the permutation inside for us to be able to get results. But So do these round-reduced uh, results actually apply to the way that this primitive would get rolled out, or is it basically just setting up uh, the stage for future attacks which could uh, be practical on actual deployed versions of Gimli? It's the latter. So right now, no one in their right mind would use Gimli with fewer rounds than specified by the designers, uh, but that's what we target. So right now, if you have something which is hashed with Gimli, as far as we know, it's fine. However, what our results indicate is that uh, it might not be 
fine for as long as we might have guessed in the first place. So we cannot attack Gimli, but what we have found could perhaps, perhaps, lead to attacks later. We are not at that stage yet. Okay, that is a very useful clarification. Um, are there any lessons that uh, we can learn from your cryptanalysis regarding the general design of hash functions uh, and AAD ciphers? Um, so I see that you use techniques here that are generally uh, techniques that are known in the field. Uh, you, you use, the, for example, um, differential linear cryptanalysis. Um, were there any sort of new insights that you were able to learn from your cryptanalysis on Gimli that can then be adopted by, in, in future analyses, perhaps? Or is it just a classical um, employment of um, existing analysis techniques? So what happened in the case of Gimli, as I mentioned before, is that they made some very uh, new design choices. And in particular, their linear layer does not mix that much. Uh, they motivate it with um, the implementation properties this is supposed to have. But from a um, cryptographic design standpoint, this is quite new. And since they have this new design technique, we have designed some uh, new attacks, which are specific to this kind of uh, round structure. So this kind of algorithm, which is going to have a weaker linear layer. So this is new, and that's what allowed us to go for all the rounds of the permutation itself. More rounds than there are in the permutation, in fact. So what happens is that since you have a very low uh, diffusion, the, so the diffusion in symmetric crypto is the property that uh, you want all the output bits to depend on the input bit. And you want this property to occur uh, quickly as you iterate the rounds. So in, within the permutation, you have several rounds, and you want each of them to have a strong diffusion to prevent attacks. In the case of Gimli, the diffusion is weaker. And it turned out, sorry, to be the, the property we could use. So we could exploit this slow symmetry, this slow diffusion, sorry, to mount attacks which would work on any algorithm built like Gimli. So if you were to change, so in Gimli they have this SP box, which is like a very big S box. If you were to change it, it wouldn't change anything as far as our attack is concerned. It could introduce other weaknesses. It could make it stronger against differential attack, for instance. But as far as uh, our attack that exploit the slow diffusion is concerned, it wouldn't work. So how do you fix Gimli? Or is it beyond beyond repair, you know? Uh, or is there... Oh, it's, uh, it's quite easy. Uh, so what happens is that in Gimli, you have some... So the linear is actually round-dependent, which <laughs> complicates the analysis. It was a bit annoying, but uh, that's how they w decided to do it. So out of each of these S-boxes, you have three... Think of them as uh, wires. And... What you and uh, so in each round, well, every second round, in fact, you have uh, two wires from two different SP boxes which are swapped, and that's it, which leads to a very slow diffusion. So, in particular, it means that you have two wires that leave one S box and go into the same S box in the output. What they could do is have more diffusion, and uh, what we exploit is the slow diffusion. So, if you increase the diffusion, then uh, our attacks are not going to work. So what you could do is uh, these uh, three wires that come out of each S-box, you have them go into three different S-boxes instead of two different ones. 
So if you exploit the, if you increase uh, diffusion without changing the underlying structure of the cipher, and I ask this very naively because I am not at all mm. a cryptanalyst, um, fundamentally the structure and the design of the cipher would remain the same. It's just that you've added yep. additional computational complexity. So yep. would it be the case that your same uh, cryptanalysis would function uh, if only you had uh, larger uh, computing power or something like that? Or um, does the underlying mathematics of your cryptanalysis fall apart um, if the diffusion reaches a certain point? It's the second one. We really exploit the slow diffusion, and we don't need a lot of computing power to do it. But if you increase diffusion, uh, we can throw all the computing power we, we want at the problem. It's not going to help. It's... Um, the, the core issue is the slow diffusion. If you fix this, it's fixed. It's not a matter of computing power. I mean, what would happen is that we would be able, with the same low complexity, to attack far fewer rounds. And that's it. Okay. Uh, we wouldn't be able to go further by throwing more computing power at it. So I think it's really exciting how this quest for really lightweight primitives is really reinvigorating um, the uh, cryptanalysis of block ciphers and symmetric primitives, something which has sort of uh, seen a bit less uh, newfangled innovation when you look at what's happening with asymmetric primitives because of their need to resist um, post-quantum, you know, to resist quant potentially quantum computers. With symmetric primitives, you're building all your primitives on... Uh, you're not building them on hard underlying mathematical problems in the same way that you're doing with algebraic problems like the discrete logarithm problem or the um, uh, factoring the uh, product of, of two prime numbers. Um, so it's uh, it's been interesting to see how this has reinvigorated uh, that particular um, study of, of symmetric ciphers. How do you see the um, NIST competition go moving forward? Is it is it near the end stage? Is there any cipher that you think is likely to uh, to 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 win the uh, the selection of NIST? Do you guys have maybe your own cipher submitted? I don't actually know whether you do or not. We do. Oh, really? Do. Okay. So there you go. So that, that explains what. Okay. What's supposed to happen is that in uh, in December, I think NIST is going to announce uh, the next round. So the candidates that make it to the next round of the selection process. So they had 56 candidates. Uh, after a year, they ditched about half of them. And it was the second round. So that's where we are right now when we have 32 algorithms. And they said they wanted to have eight candidates uh, to the final round. And then they would have the actual uh, winners of the competition maybe a year later. So, of course, the timeline was completely um, disrupted by the COVID uh, pandemic. We should, have, we should know right now what the round three candidates are, but we don't. It was postponed to December. For me, the big unknown is whether NIST is going to go for a one do-it-all lightweight primitive or a portfolio. Uh, that's what I uh, was uh, saying in the beginning. Maybe they want something which is pretty good at many things. Or maybe they want to have uh, algorithms which are excellent at a specific thing and maybe suck at others. So like the eStream portfolio that we saw like a decade ago. Yeah. The mm -hmm. e for eStream, you had uh, the software profile and the hardware profile. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to do something similar and maybe not. And as far as I know, it's not clear. 
So what's the what name of your uh, what's the name of your submission? Maybe we can link it in the podcast description. So many of the authors of this attack, uh, so that would be me, Maria, and André, we are co-authors of an algorithm called Saturna, uh, which is like an AES with a bigger block size and with very easy constant time implementation. Since it has a bigger block, it might sound counterintuitive to have a bigger block size for a lighter algorithm, but with the bigger block size, we can also do hashing. And so with just one block cipher, we can do encryption and hashing uh, without the need to store two primitives uh, at the same spot. And with the bigger block size, we can also have very strong arguments uh, for security in the post-quantum setting. Uh, the impact of quantum computers on symmetric crypto is much smaller than in um, public key crypto in the sense that we don't need to reinvent the field. But it does change a few things, and a bigger block size is nicer. So that's why in Saturna we have uh, this bigger block size. Oh, what are you going to do Which, once the Gimli authors uh, come with an Asia Crypt paper of their own? You know, like full ultra. Well, they can try. We would welcome it. Um, yeah. yeah, if they want uh, vengeance, they are welcome to try. We'll wow. see. Where, we would see how it goes. That's the um, uh, samurai. Saturna is really big like the AES, so samurai katana uh, um, uh, handguns drawn at dawn, or whatever the cowboy yeah, equivalent cool. is version of cryptography. It's. I mean, it's a competition. Very thrilling. <laughs> um, so I think, in my opinion, Saturna will have uh, a good chance with NIST if NIST decides to go with the uh, um, one-size-fits-all algorithm. For the portfolio, because that's how we designed it. We wanted it to be good at uh, at everything. So we'll see. And also, if NIST really cares about post quantum uh, security, we are the only ones making strong claims. Uh, we have also designed other algorithms within the team. So Gaetan has uh, co designed Spook, which is optimized. It's like a Gimli in the sense that it's also a permutation, uh, and uh, it's optimized for masked implementations. So its performances in the usual settings are not that great. But if you care about sidechain attacks and want to be protected against them, then it's really good. And uh, I have co-designed also permutation-based algorithms called Sparkle, and they are optimized for software, so on microcontrollers, like 8-bit microcontrollers. And it's like Spook in the sense that if all you care about is microcontrollers, then it's really good. Its performances, I mean, are really good. Uh, but on FPGAs and the likes, it's not going to be that great. So for these two algorithms, they have a much higher chance of uh, making it to the next round if NIST wants a portfolio. You also have an algorithm like uh, Skinny, so it's part of several uh, candidates. It's in the same situation. Um, it's very good in hardware. So if you are going to go with a portfolio, I think there will be a Skinny-based candidate that makes it uh, to the end. But if you don't go for a portfolio, not so much. Would you say that if you didn't go for a portfolio, Skinny would have a slim chance of getting <laughs> into the end? <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So uh, thank you so much. I think I learned a lot about uh, the importance of uh, lightweight block ciphers and uh, the context of, of how this goes. Um, so I usually ask my guests to share an interesting paper that they've read recently. And I see that you've submitted three interesting papers that you've read recently, of which I'm going to just pick the first one. Um, so could you talk uh, more about why you found uh, lower bounds on the degree of block ciphers um, such an interesting paper? 
it solves an open problem. So we know how to put an upper bound on the algebraic degree of block ciphers, and we want block ciphers to have a high algebraic degree. So when we try and attack ciphers, we want if we have just an upper bound, we are happy because if this upper bound is low enough, it means we can mount some attacks. But as a designer, you don't care about an upper bound, you want a lower bound because you want your cipher to be at least as good and not at least as bad. And we didn't know how to do that. It sounds simple, but it's actually very difficult to get a lower bound on the algebraic degree of a block cipher. And uh, these guys have managed, which is quite impressive uh, and a very nice result. Okay, perfect. Um, this is this is all I have uh, for for you, uh, Leo. Okay. In, in terms of questions, I am very grateful that you uh, answered my questions today, and uh, hopefully our listeners will have an opportunity to learn more. That's it for this episode of Cryptography FM. Um, I'm really glad that Leo was able to join us today and talk more about lightweight cryptographic primitives and breaking them and making them. But if you also have an interesting topic that has to do with cryptography, whether you're designing a stream cipher, you're formally verifying a protocol, you're making a new signature scheme, you're hacking a car, you're making a coffee machine do something weird, come and have a conversation. This is a great way to get your work out there. This is a great way to engage in a new medium for the cryptography community. And I would love to talk to you about your work and have it reach more people in the field. So come on the show and stay tuned for future episodes of substantive and interesting discussions, hopefully, in the field of applied cryptography. Thanks for tuning in.